Okay, well, Daniel 6. I want to just start off by, by pointing out how often the word Daniel occurs in this chapter, and in fact, throughout, uh, throughout Daniel. And I think that's significant because he was given the name Belteshazzar in the, in the Babylonian context in which he lived, and that was, of course, a pagan name. And it included the name of the god Bel, the god of Babylon, Belteshazzar that may Bel be exalted, similar to the meaning of, of the word Babylon. But Daniel obviously didn't want that. He wanted to be known as Daniel, which, of course, had El in it, the, the Hebrew name for God. And I think he must have made quite a point about this, because even his enemies, when they're talking about him in verse 5, they talk about this Daniel. And verse 13, that Daniel, which is of the children of the captivity of, of Judah. Incidentally, verse 28 concludes with the, uh, the inspired comment, this Daniel, uh, quoting, as it were, their rather cynical words about, uh, about Daniel. So he really wanted to be known as Daniel and not as Belteshazzar. And you, you see that uh, in, in chapter 5, when they're looking around for someone to interpret the, the, uh, the, the handwriting that Belteshazzar had, has seen, King Belteshazzar, and they talk about, ah oh yes, uh, Daniel. Uh, there was a, a Daniel, chapter 5, verse 12, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called. And the king uh, says to him, verse 13 of chapter 5, Are you that Daniel? So, clearly he, he was known by his, by his Hebrew name. And I think we need to remember that by baptism, we took upon ourselves the name of the Lord. We were baptized into that name. We carry that name in this world. And it's just a, one of the many lessons that you get from, from Daniel that he insisted that he be known for who he really was. And he realized the, the colossal significance of the fact that he had taken upon himself that name of God, that he was one of the covenant people, just a, a, as, a, as, we, as we should. So then, I've said earlier that Daniel chapter 2 is really programmatic, it's really at the centre of understanding the whole prophecy of Daniel. And all these great kings that we read of in the book of Daniel, they all struggled to believe that actually their kingdom was not going to be eternal, that after them would come somebody else, and that in the end it is only the God of Israel who will have an eternal kingdom. I think you see that in chapter 6, verse 8 here, and several times in this chapter, where it talks about the law of the Medes and Persians, which alters not. Now, that is the same Chaldee word as in chapter 2, verse, verse 21, about how God removes, he alters kings, and he changes times and seasons, because he is the one who has the eternal kingdom. So then Darius didn't want to believe that actually his rulership and kingdom would in the end be altered and removed by, by God. And all these monarchs that we read of in Daniel have this problem, that they don't want to accept the implication of that image. Now how does that apply to us? Well, in fact, we all have our own very little kingdom. It may be your room with your few possessions that you consider to be yours your little environment that you know. It may be more than that. It may be the house or the apartment that you spent your working life working to pay off the mortgage on, and now that's yours and your computer and your 
home entertainment system, your car, and maybe far more than that. All those things we want to keep, I mean psychologically, subconsciously, we want to keep, and we live with the idea that they are eternal. And yet the challenge of the gospel of the kingdom, and Daniel is full, the book of Daniel is full of the good news of the eternal kingdom of God that is to come. The the implication of that is that actually our little kingdom, no matter how small it might be in worldly terms, is not going to last forever. The only hope of immortality and preservation of all that is you and all that is me is that we shall live eternally in God's kingdom in the future. So then, Darius is tricked by these, uh, by these guys into, into signing this decree that is clearly aimed at one man, and that's uh, Daniel. And the question is, uh, why did Darius sign it? Did he not foresee what was going to happen? And although these men lower down the ladder, as it were, knew Daniel's habit of praying, because he did this, and when he continues to pray, it says that he prayed to God, verse 10 of chapter 6, as he did previously. So they knew that he prayed regularly to, to his God. But it would seem that Darius didn't know that. And yet Daniel was pretty close to him, because he was considering making him, verse 3, really the second-in-command over the whole empire. And yet he doesn't seem to have twigged that, well, if, I'm, if I sign up to this thing for 30 days, well, then Daniel's, uh, that means Daniel's going to have to get thrown into the, into the lion's den. So I wonder if Daniel actually was not as strong as he might have been, and that actually he was not known to the man whom he worked closely with, that is, uh, Darius, as being a prayerful person. You could argue that, well, this was because Darius was, was new to the job, as it were. But it leads me to another thought, and this goes back to chapter 3, when, you remember, the great statue is set up, and the command is given, whoever doesn't fall down and worship the statue is going to be thrown into the furnace of, of fire. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to bow down, and so they are thrown into the fiery furnace. And the question is, well, where was Daniel? And I know this is an old chestnut, and there's various options in trying to understand where he was. But I wonder if, in fact, he simply was weak at that time. And he, along with, let's face it, the rest of the Jewish community in Babylon, which was pretty big... Uh, just went along with it. And it was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who stood up. These were his three friends, and yet he is somehow not there. Now, why I say that is because the whole incident here of Daniel being thrown into the den of lions is very, very similar. The record is framed so similarly to the whole story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, being thrown into the the furnace of fire. It's very, very, very similar. Because there's a a command to do something which a believer in the God of Israel cannot do. There's a great proclamation about it. There's jealousy. There's the, the leaders of the empire know that a Jew can't really do these things if he really believes what he says he does. And so... That's then put into power by the, by the king, and then we, we, we see that uh, Daniel, or earlier Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, stood up and did what was right. Then 
these men go running off to the king and remind him of his law. And then, yes, well, he doesn't really want to, but he goes along with it. And those three men were thrown into the fire, into the furnace, and Daniel is thrown into the, the den of lions. And the same Chaldee word is used here in chapter 6, verse 24, where, where, where we, uh, <clears throat> we read that these men accused Daniel. Chapter 6, verse 24, that's the same word in chapter 3, verse 8, for how the, the three friends were accused. And an angel was sent into the fiery furnace to preserve those three men and here an angel is sent to preserve Daniel and then the king comes and he looks and he's amazed he accepts the greatness of Israel's God and he makes a command that all the earth is to or all his empire is to respect the God of Israel and again in chapter 6 verse 23 here where they come and inspect them. Uh, sorry, they come and inspect Daniel. When it says no type of no manner of hurt or damage was found upon him, it's the same in chapter three, verse twenty-five, where the friends are found to have no hurt, to have not suffered any hurt when they're inspected, when they sniff their clothes and say, "Well, there's not even any smell of fire upon them." And then, of course, those who had tried to uh, get Daniel killed and those who had tried to get the three friends killed, they are punished uh, with the same sort of judgment that they had tried to get upon the, upon the Jews. Now, this is all so similar. Clearly, these two accounts are in parallel. And that is what makes me think that, in fact, Daniel was consciously... Uh, doing all this when he he goes into his house knowing that the decree has been signed verse 10 and he opens his windows they didn't have glass windows these would have been uh, wooden windows uh, he purposefully opens his windows so that everybody can see what he's doing and I wonder if he felt a pang of guilt that he had not actually stood up as he should have done back in chapter 3 and now he sees, okay, I may have to pay for this with my life, but I am going to learn the lesson. And so in our lives, there's a strong sense of deja vu, that you may have one set of experiences, situations, trials, tests of your faith, which you may or may not pass successfully. In this case, in chapter 3, I think Daniel failed it. But then God sets you up with a situation where you can learn the lesson where, in essence, the situation repeats again. It may be, let's say, that you are deceived by somebody financially or materially, and you fail the first time. You go running around trying to get the guy into court or trying to fight back, and you realize that was wrong. And then later on in your life, very similar situation occurs again, and you think, stop, stop, let me learn the lesson from what happened before, now I will not do it. Daniel was so convinced of this that he was willing to pay with his life because he realized that it was going to be this uh, death by being eaten by lions if he stood up and did what he knew was, was right. 
And I think he learned from his weakness in chapter 3. That's my interpretation. So then, the trials that God sends to us, the tests, the development situations that he sends, are not really avoidable if we're truly his. Okay, you can get out of it the first time, but it will repeat. And of course, it works the other way. You can pass with flying colors, like Asa did, um, when he, he was confronted by a huge army. But then when he's confronted by a smaller army, he does the wrong thing and spends his silver and gold uh, trying to get someone else to come and, and, uh, uh, and, and solve the problem for him. So, just because you've passed the first time doesn't mean that you're not going to face the situation uh, again. So that is what I, I think is, is going on here, and it's, it leads you, I think, to respect Daniel more, in that he consciously did this. You know, he opens, verse 10, his, his windows toward Jerusalem, kneels upon his knees, knowing, obviously, what's going to happen, and he prays, or requests, makes request is really the uh, meaning there of the original, and he gives thanks before his God, as he previously did. Uh, stop and think about that, that in that awful situation, he thanked God. There was no anger with God. There was no, you know, ah, this is unreasonable. Look, I've done my shot. I've been faithful. I, I've done my thing. Um, why, why are you bringing this upon me now? Particularly as, you know, he was an old man now. And, no, he thanked God. And that's really quite a thing, to be able to thank God in those hard times when it really seems that, look here, God, that, that is kind of going too far. Because God will not test us beyond what he knows we're capable of, of bearing. And he makes request, or praise, a lot of the versions say. And that word is used several times in Daniel, and it's normally about Daniel's requesting uh, things to do with the establishment or re-establishment of God's kingdom. So there he was praying, really, for the end of, of Medo-Persia, for the end of Babylon, for the whole thing to come to an end and God's kingdom to be established, and he thanks God. That's really quite, uh, really quite, quite wonderful. It just shows that he had got the lesson of Daniel 2 very clearly. He knew that this world's empires are going to pass away, both their own petty empires and all the political stuff. It is all going to go, and he just couldn't wait for that day to come. So, verse 14, the king is very, very dis displeased with himself, and he set his heart on Daniel to deliver him, and he laboured till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Verse 14. Sounds like heavy manual work, doesn't it? Labouring to deliver this man until the sun went down and he couldn't do it. Worried about him, working so hard. That's the idea that, that you get from that verse 14. But wait a minute, this guy is sovereign monarch. He is the absolute sovereign king. Of course he can break his own laws. No problem. Those sort of guys do it all the time. Why, then, did he not just say, Hey, wait a minute, guys, no, we're not going to chuck Daniel there. Uh, I mean... <laughs> As soon as a law like that is made, of, of course, that despite all the talk about the laws of Medes and Persians that don't alter, a sovereign monarch can do what he wants. And they did do what they wanted. Simple as that. Do as I say, not as I do. I'm above the law. I mean, these guys thought they were basically God. 
they could just do what they wanted. So why is there all this talk of this labouring? I think the labour was all mental. It was trying, trying, trying to find a way out of this so that Daniel wouldn't have to go to the, the lion's den without losing face. And very often, I think we spend a huge amount of time, both as individuals and even as groups of believers, ecclesias, churches, etc., trying to find some way, some legalistic form of words, some bridging a document or whatever to resolve a problem, rather than simply doing that which is right, even though it would mean recognising that we were wrong. So it's human pride, as always, <clears throat> that, that gets in the way, isn't it? So he doesn't stand up for what he should have should have done, and so Daniel has to has to go to the the den of lions. He says, verse sixteen. <clears throat> he says, "Your God, whom you serve continually, he will deliver you. Whom you serve continually." He's alluding, of course, to the way that Daniel prayed three times a day, and obviously by now it had become clear, yes, Daniel prays three times a day, and he does it, and actually, O oh, king, everybody knows he, he does it, and Daniel would have said that, yeah, look, king, I, I do it three times a day, and I'm not going to stop for 30 days just because of your law. So, serving God continually is here used about praying. And we may think that I can do nothing. What can I do? We may feel that we are so limited, so hemmed in by life situations, by circumstance, that I can do nothing. How, how can I serve God? Well, look, here's a way in which you can serve God continually, and that's by praying. Really and truly. It sounds uh, sort of old hat, but it is really the case. And so he's uh, thrown into the, de into the den of lions, and God sends his angel. Verse 22. And it's interesting to see the, the role that the angels play in the lives of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in this kind of historical first half of Daniel. Because when you come on to, to the later prophecies in Daniel, you also got the idea of angels being sent and angels going here, there and everywhere. And I think the idea is that just as the angels manipulate situations politically with whole world empires, so they work in our lives. God sent his angel. And you could say that's just a figure of speech, but we are invited to see God as sitting in the heavenly throne room, discussing, considering our situations here on earth, and actually sending an angel. And yes, we are invited to imagine the angel coming all the way from heaven to earth, that infinite distance, to us. Uh, and this is, the, this is the point, that really and truly, God is aware of our situations. And so the thing ends, as as has happened earlier in the book of Daniel, um, verse 25, with this worldwide proclamation that in the Septuagint is described very much in terms of the Great Commission to go into all the world with the good news of the kingdom of God. Verse 25, to all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. 
So this is really the good news of the kingdom being proclaimed just as it was after the resurrection of Jesus, after he, as it were, came up out of the, the den of lions when he, when he was resurrected. And I think in verse 26 you see that Darius eventually comes back to Daniel 2.44 where we're told that God will have a kingdom, the God of Israel will set up a kingdom which shall not be destroyed. And he says this, His kingdom is that which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall be even unto the end. So then, he came to realize, I think, that his laws, which he thought could not be altered, which could not be changed, we saw in verse 8, it's the same word in chapter 2, verse 21, about God changes kings. He moves the different uh, parts of the image, from the head of gold, then the next lot, the Medo-Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans, etc. This man eventually comes to see the truth of the, the message of the kingdom of God because of how God had delivered and saved Daniel, verse 27. And that is really the greatest witness that we can make to the kingdom. That is how people become persuaded of the reality of God's kingdom when they see his work in our lives. Now, there is a, a decree, verse 26, that everybody throughout the empire is to respect the God of Daniel. And that's very similar, of course, to uh, what, what we read before um, at the end of, uh, end of chapter 3, and also at the end of chapter 2, that there are these decrees um, in chapter 3, verse 29, every people, nation, and language which speak anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, because there is no other God that can deliver after this sort. All through the prophets, particularly in Jeremiah, Israel are criticized, or Judah are, are criticized, for the fact that their sin will lead to the name of God being blasphemed in all the nations to which they shall be carried captive. That is said so many times in the prophets, many, many times, that the name of God would be blasphemed, the name of Israel's God would be blasphemed in all the world, in all the, the nations and languages and tongues, into which they would go in captivity. And yet, here we see, in the case of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, and now again in the case of Daniel, that for the sake of three faithful young men in chapter 3, and here a faithful old man in chapter 6, just one individual, the consequence of Israel's sin was in that sense ameliorated, because now it's not allowed to blaspheme the name of Israel's God. It's a law. It was a law in Babylon, and now it's a law in Persia. Um, and amongst all the subject, nations, and languages, and people, that you must not blaspheme the name of Israel's God, you must exalt the God of Israel. So the consequence that was stated so many times in the prophets for Israel's sin was in fact undone by the faithfulness of a few individuals. Sin does have consequence. And it's easy to say, ah, yeah, well, it's happened to him or it happened to her because he sinned, because she did that, because that's how he carried on. That's his problem. Yeah, sin does have consequence, but 
it doesn't mean that you should not lift a finger to do anything about it, because God did. And, in fact, if that's how God looked at you and me, who should stand? Because the wages of sin is death, and you and I have sinned. That's it. We made a choice. Consequence is ours. But God then tries to overcome that consequence. So then, we really should take a lesson from, from that in our dealings with others, and to realize that just one faithful man can change the consequence of sin for a whole nation. This really is the power of, of one, if you like, or the, the power of a very small minority. And of course we can't come closer now to the breaking of bread and thinking about the Lord Jesus without seeing, of course, the obvious similarities here between Daniel and Jesus. That there, the King Darius is very similar to Pilate. He's doing what he doesn't want to do. He's being manipulated by his underlings, fear of image and consequence, etc. And so he, as it were, sends uh, Jesus to the cross. Daniel is sent into the den of lions. Into the cave of lions is, I think, the the more correct uh, literal translation, just as Jesus went into the grave, but he came up out of it. And, of course, the the big stone was put over the the, the mouth of the cave in verse um, 17, and it's sealed just as it was with uh, with Jesus, soldiers guarding the, uh, the tomb with the stone over it. He comes up out of that cave... And then there is this worldwide proclamation of God's kingdom into all the earth.